Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency. Hey, welcome back. Well, today I'm thrilled to be able to bring you a conversation with Zach Reynolds, Full Sail's Chief Investment Officer, and Ed Serencino with Vanguard. Now, Ed has held many roles during his 20 plus years at Vanguard, but currently is a Senior Portfolio Specialist with Vanguard Financial Advisor Services. As you can imagine, we tackle a little bit of everything today, from the Fed and rates to inflation to portfolio construction, the importance of long-term thinking and a low-cost approach, controlling what we can control, which if you've heard any of our our conversations in the past or any of our podcasts, you will probably hear us say that uh, numerous times. So I thought this was a really informative discussion between Zach and Ed. I know you will enjoy it. If you have any feedback or questions, please let us know. That's why we do this. We want to bring information to you so that you are informed, you are equipped, and with everything going on, with all the noise, that we can be a voice of peace, of calm, a rational approach to investing. We are so grateful to Ed for allowing us the time to sit down and have this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, Ed, thanks again for joining us today. I've got Zach sitting in here with us, and we just appreciate the time. We appreciate you carving out some podcast time for us to answer some questions and have a really discussion on what's going on. And it's so good for us and our clients to get a viewpoint that's maybe not from us, but I thought I'd start here. So Ed, I mentioned in the intro, you're a Vanguard portfolio specialist. You've been there for 20 years. So you really do understand and have clearly latched on to the Vanguard way of thinking, the DNA. But give me a little bit of an idea here. What's their overall approach? What do you love about Vanguard company DNA, some history? What would you add to anything that I left out? No, thank you, Tyler. And I I appreciate that too. And, you know, even before I even get started, I just want to say thank you just for inviting us here as well. You know, Vanguard believes in the value that financial advisors play with their clients and firms like yourself, Full Sail Capital, you know, even in times of modest stress, you know, the, the value that you bring your underlying clients, but even more so, it's it's even more amplified right now with just the amount of volatility which uh, we've been seeing within the market. So it's really great to be here. And, you know, a, a little bit more about Vanguard and just why I've been here for 20 years. Sure. I would say first and foremost, it's client first. You know, Mr. Bogle started the firm over 40 years ago. And what he wanted to do was set up a firm that looks out of the best interest of its underlying investors, first and foremost. Uh, And he set up what we refer to internally as a mutually organized structure. So essentially what that means is that there's no equity stakes and there's nobody else that has ownership in the company outside of the individuals that invest in the underlying products, just like your clients do. So it's that structure uh, that's unique to the entire industry that gives us a pretty meaningful competitive advantage. Oh, no doubt. For two reasons too. One is gonna be just when you look at the underlying expenses to run the funds, that's just the cost associated with, with managing this fund. So there's not an extra layer of fees associated with that. And you know, because we don't have dual mandates here, our focus is going to be exclusively with just our underlying clients like yourself and your clients and just making sure that everything that we provide, both from a product standpoint, but then from a service standpoint as well, is just exclusively aligned to meet your needs. Hey, Ed, Zach Reynolds here. Thanks for walking us through that. I think it's really important that clients understand 
that when they invest in that Vanguard fund, they are getting a very low cost product. And, you know, if you were to look at our portfolios today, we've got, you know, some Vanguard ETFs and mutual funds, but even some of your competitors who offer other ETFs, they've been led down this path of lower fees, largely due to what Vanguard's done. And it's created this competition to just drive fees as low as possible. And of course, our view is the lower amount of fees that our clients pay, the higher their net return. And, you know, we had Eric Balchunas on the podcast last year. Some work that he's done has shown that what he calls the Vanguard effect has saved investors in fees over a trillion dollars. And I think that was back in 2016. So probably even higher now, but we're very much uh, appreciative of the efforts of Mr. Bogle and what Vanguard has done over time because it's just really revolutionized the industry and increased net returns for clients. And we appreciate that too, Zach. And, you know, the mission's not complete quite yet. We're going to still moving forward, but, you know, recognition for everything that Vanguard's done over the last 40 years is, is greatly appreciated. Well, thank you both. I, I think that really sets us up well. If you haven't been able to gather this, our values and kind of approach clearly align. And I think that's where I wanted to take this conversation today. So let's get into a little bit of the what's going on currently. It has been anything if not a little chaotic and unnerving in the market, but I thought it'd be really interesting to have you two kind of have a discussion from the investment side, from the structure side, near-term outlook even. I mean, I know, I think neither of our firms are in the business of trying to predict the future, whether it's near-term or long-term, but let's have a conversation of what is going on. Let's take a time to kind of break some of that down, the Fed, the rates, the inflation. There are a lot of negatives, but there, as we've talked about recently in our firm, Zach, there are some positive things that will begin to happen that have not been happening. So let's get into that. You guys tell me where you want to start here. Yeah, Ed, maybe just set the backdrop for our listeners of thinking back to the end of 2021, where the market was and kind of what's happened over the last four months. Sure, Zach. And, you know, I, I will say what we're experiencing in markets right now is perhaps maybe the co most complex of our career. And, you know, one of the biggest catalysts for this has been just, you know, the persistent inflation that we've been noticing recently as well. So first and foremost, I think we just have to recognize that we're clearly starting to make our way out of the pandemic and there's no playbooks for any of this. And ourselves, yourself, you know, policymakers, we're all learning as we're experiencing this together. And what that leads to is going to be incredibly volatile capital markets, just like we're experiencing right now. And I would say, you know, when you look at markets across the board, both equities and fixed income are down meaningfully. Now, it's not something that we've experienced a lot recently, but it's also not uncommon when the major catalyst for this is going to be sticky inflation and a hawkish Fed. And it's quite common in that type of environment to notice both stocks and bonds declining at the same time. What's interesting here is I, I, I wanted to look back and see when was the last time we had a quarterly performance for fixed income that was as stressful as what we've experienced in the first quarter of this year. And I'm going to have to take you back to 1980. So over 40 years was the last time we noticed a period of time where fixed income markets have been distressed. And you know, as we start looking towards the second quarter as well, uh, the second quarter, at least up to this point, might be competing with the, uh, <laughs> you know, what we've been noticing in the first quarter too. So I say all this stuff Zach, because like, I just want to put it in perspective that this is not something 
that's common. We ran analytics on 30, 70 portfolios and 70, 30 portfolios over the first quarter. And, you know, these are near the bottom of observations that we've seen. And it's natural for your clients to be concerned and unnerved, but it's also just important to recognize that markets do go through this from time to time. And at some point, you know, the volatility will ebb as there's more clarity with what's happening with the economy. Do you think this is a debate that I've heard kind of among financial commentators? Obviously, we know the Fed is raising rates because inflation has gotten out of hand. And the economic relationship there is as interest rates go up, that should have an effect of slowing the economy down and slowing inflation down. I've heard some people argue that we know the Fed's been incredibly supportive post-global financial crisis 2008-2009. They want to normalize rates. What normal means is still kind of open to interpretation. But I've heard a school of thought that they want to raise rates so that the next time we do have a recession, they can cut rates and be supportive again. And then I think there's another school of thought that, no, this is a different Fed. They're going to be hawkish. Rates are going to be higher, and that's going to be a drag on the economy. Do you have a view or does Vanguard have a view on kind of where we ultimately end up looking out a few years down the line? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, I would say that the Fed is clearly mindful of the inflationary pressures that we've been experiencing in the economy right now, both in how they've been communicating to markets, uh, also at the same time, you know, the plans that they've most recently laid out. Now, I do want to talk about the impacts of that on, on markets, but I want to address your question first then too. So what's happening right now is that the market is anticipating a very hawkish Fed. And you've been noticing the yield curve move accordingly. So it's been a pretty big upward movement in yields, which what it means to your underlying clients is that they're seeing some price depreciation. What happens with markets is these conditions start to tighten before the Fed actually does anything. So the Fed has commenced their hiking cycle, but what we're seeing reflective in markets is going to be you know, several hikes by the Fed throughout the year. Ultimately, though, to your point and to your direct question, you know, what neutral is going to be is a little bit of an open question mark. But we do think that the Fed needs to go a lot more with raising interest rates than where they're at right now. You know, as our economics team looks at it, they're looking at a target federal funds rate terminal rate for this cycle, pretty close to 3%. So we're not there yet, not even close for that matter. But I think the most important thing too, though, Zach, is it's always important for clients to recognize that the markets, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, are forward looking. So it's already priced in a very hawkish Fed. In my conversations with RAs like yourself and from what they tell me with their underlying clients, it's not always understood or intuitive that interest rates don't necessarily need to go up from this point forward because of Fed action. The markets already anticipated you know, a very hawkish Fed throughout the course of this year. And that's why you see such negative results for fixed income in, in 2022. I think that's an incredibly important point. So let's dive down a little more because, uh, you know, I hear comments sometimes from clients saying, well, hey, we know rates are going to go up. So why not wait until rates are higher to buy bonds? What you're saying is, the, of course, the market is forward looking. So bond prices have already adjusted to mm-hmm. take into account the expectation that rates are going to go up. But here's where I think it can be a little confusing for people. Short-term rates, what they're getting on money market funds, for example. I know you have some expertise in that area. Let's say they're getting 75 basis points once the latest 
Fed hike gets incorporated, but ultimately we're headed to 3%. I think it is important. Maybe you can draw a distinction between the very short end of the curve, which the Fed controls, and then the longer end of the bond uh, market, the interest rate curve, and the differences there. Yeah, exactly, Zach. That's a good point. So couple of thoughts. One is going to be, you're right. So what the Fed, when they say raising interest rates, essentially what that means is they're raising the target federal funds rate, which is going to be the lending rate between Fed member banks. Now there's going to be a ripple effect throughout the entire economy because of that. But that's the rate of which they can have explicit control. So you're right with money market funds because money market and funds invest in the very, very short end of the curve. That will have more of a direct impact based off of Fed action. But once you start going out longer on the curve, that's going to be supply-demand dynamics by market participants, essentially just based off of expectations for growth and inflation going forward. So there's less explicit control uh, that's happening on the long end of the curve. And I don't want to make this conversation too wonky, but what you've been noticing with the yield curve is that it started to flatten. So you're noticing, you know, short rates starting to move up because of Fed action, which is essentially bringing it online with what you would have similar yields with a five-year, 10-year, or even a a 30-year security at this point. I've been doing a lot of reading on this right now. We really can't, even though we expect the Fed to raise interest rates from here, we can't say that the 10-year treasury a year from now, if the Fed does that, necessarily will be higher than it is today. So this kind of gets into market efficiency, but as we think about some of the benefits of rising rates, why don't you talk a little bit about prospective returns going forward for bonds today versus where we were you know, at the end of 2021? Yeah, exactly. And with rising interest rates is going to be ultimately a good thing for all of our clients in the future. I want to address one thing that you said, though, too, before I even get into that as well. Because the Fed is raising rates doesn't necessarily mean that the tenure needs to go up from here. It could. I don't know. I think being able to predict the future is a difficult task (laughs) to begin with. And I think all of us right now need to treat the future with the humility that it deserves. And, you know, the range of potential outcomes, as I mentioned earlier in the TF, are at the highest levels that we've ever experienced, at least me in, in my career. Just to put an analogy on that, you know, when I think about it as a baseball game, a nine-inning baseball game, I don't know if what we're seeing with interest rates, if we're in the seventh inning, the eighth inning, but I sure as heck know we're not in the second or third inning. And I can just simply look at you know, what's happening with, with rates up to this point. Again, the worst fixed income market in the last 40 years. But you make a really, really strong point. When you think about fixed income returns, a significant majority of that return for investors over extended periods of time is going to be the underlying income from the investment itself. The price appreciation up and down over short periods of time, I know it's painful to see on your statement, but it truly is going to be noise over short periods of time. The reason why we're seeing depreciation now, it's because we saw such strong price appreciation a couple years ago when the Fed was cutting rates and buying bonds. They needed to do so to be able to provide the market with ample liquidity to get us through the pandemic. And this is unfortunately what we've been experiencing over the first and second quarters of this year is going to be the bills due. You know, we, we can't live in a world of zero interest rate policy and the Fed buying bonds forever. We need to adjust policy as the world around us adjusts. And this is the painful 
ramifications of it. But to your point, you know, when you look at top line yields across the board for fixed income, it's ultimately going to be a good thing. You know, you look at the the Barclays Ag, uh, or you know, well over three percent right now. Corporate bonds, you know, well over four percent. Muni bonds on an after tax yield for for your high income earners over five percent right now. These are attractive levels that we have not seen in quite a while. So there is good news going forward. And ideally, we can get the economy to a point where these asset classes are making a return above inflation going forward, which you know you can't achieve without this pain that we're experiencing right now. Right. And I think that's that's another important point. Clients who may have a view that inflation will remain high might not think a four or five percent yield is attractive because if inflation stays at 8%, you're still losing money. I think what the market is telling us is inflation is likely to normalize at some lower level over time, meaning that some of those 4 or 5% yields that you're talking about will deliver a real return after inflation, which is a different environment than we've been in in quite a while. We've had a 10-year that went below 1% at one point. Of course, if you have inflation, even modest levels of 2% and you're getting 0.6% on your 10-year treasury, you're losing money. Exactly. No, I agree with you completely. You know, when I think about, you know, our view of inflation, and I don't want you to think Vanguard has any crystal ball here. We're going to precisely be able to tell you what inflation is going to be on December 31st, 2022. But we do believe that it's going to start trending lower through the back half of this year. What you've been experiencing up to this point has been goods inflation, which a lot of it has been a byproduct of originally COVID and the supply chain disruptions. Then right now we have elevated commodity costs because of various different factors. Obviously, first and foremost is going to be the, the, the crisis within Europe. At the same time, China still has lockdowns, which is impacting supply chains. That's Rising commodity prices, you know, is impacting things. And then ultimately what you can see is probably going to see somewhat elevated services inflation throughout this year. But at some point that's going to start dissipating as the Fed starts raising interest rates and aggregate demand starts tempering and just higher costs on its own could impact demand too. So as as you said, you, you mentioned the market doesn't think inflation is going to be as persistent and high going forward. And, and Vanguard believes that too. We're going to start grinding to lower inflation towards the back half of this year. What we end up getting to before the Fed decides to stop raising rates is still to be seen, but we do expect inflation to start moderating this year. That's great. I think we spent a lot of time and deservingly show on the rate side and the fixed income mm-hmm. side. Let's shift to equities and get some input around the equity markets. I think a lot of the same comments probably apply, but let's give listeners a little bit of an idea on the equity side, where we are, where we could be going, any shifts you guys might necessarily see right now. Yeah, when I think about equity markets, and we had a really strong decade up to this point. That's why it hurts so bad right now, Ed. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we're a little bit spoiled, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of tongue-in-cheek comment there, right? But it's been a really strong equity market. So when I think about, you know, how we forecast what's going to happen with equities, well, we can run simulations over the next 12 months. And what you're going to have is a distribution with pretty fat tails because it's really, really hard to predict what happens with equity markets over very short periods of time. 
But once you start running that same analysis and do it over extended periods of time, like five years and then 10 years, you start seeing somewhat of a normalization of a, of a bell curve and you, know, so you start seeing more of a normal distribution. And you know, a couple takeaways from you know, what our research shows is going to be that we just don't think equity markets are going to have the same decade-long return, uh, at least in the U.S., that we just experienced previously. So just having realistic expectations for equities over the next decade, especially in the U.S., is something to be you know, mindful of. You know, when, and then when you start breaking it down by styles and by regions, you know, what we find is when you look at value securities relative to growth securities, we do see a strong likelihood for value to, to start outperforming growth over the course of the next decade as well. And if you look at just what's been happening with growth securities recently, it's mostly a byproduct of what's referred to as their longer duration exposure, which essentially just means it has a higher PE ratio. Just for the price that you're paying for those underlying companies, it takes right. a little bit longer to realize those earnings. And inflation, unfortunately, um, would impact those valuations. So that's happening right now. And e even over the course, over the next decade, we do expect value securities to outperform. And also at the same time, our investment strategists see uh, international as an opportunity for clients as well, you know, relative to what we're seeing for potential returns on the U.S. side too. So I would say modest returns going forward, expecting both value and then non-U.S. to outperform over the next 10 years. Maybe I'd dive a little deeper into the international. It's certainly a topic that I think we are not alone as, as advisors who have globally diversified portfolios who are getting questions from clients about, hey, it looks like, you know, the S&P 500, as we all know, has really been uh, large cap U.S. stocks have been one of the best performing areas, if not the best performing areas uh, for almost a decade now. I think emerging markets returns over the last 10 years annualized somewhere in the 2% range. What is it about international uh, markets that Vanguard finds attractive at this point and why should clients uh, remain invested in that area? Yeah, no, that's a fair question, Zach, too. And like oftentimes, you know, we can see the headlines, right? You can see the headlines, your clients can see the headlines. I can obviously see the headlines and I can see things like zero tolerance COVID shutdown in China. You know, we obviously in our hearts and, and minds are with what's happening in Eastern Europe as well. We can see that very clear too. But the market is also important to note, the market's also forward looking as well. So as we see those headlines, you, know, you mentioned efficiencies of markets a little bit earlier. All that's being discounted and priced in as well to the future earnings of these underlying companies. And that would be one of the, the biggest factors. It's going to be a couple of things, but one of which is going to be just the, the entry point, the valuations of which you could be getting from non-U.S. companies right now relative to U.S. companies. And it's, again, the byproduct of just the strong returns we've been experiencing in the U.S. and the market pricing that in. And the second component of it too, which is is kind of like a, a long lost art when it comes to investing, but just the dividend side of it as well. You know, when you look at dividends outside of the United States, uh, they're higher than what you would be getting here as well. So that's an important part of total return. You know, when you think about total return of stocks, it's actually quite simple. It's going to be three things. It's going to be the earnings of the underlying companies, the change in the price earnings ratio, either up and down and the income achieved by it as well. So you know, both valuations and income are, are more attractive outside the United States. I 
Totally agree. I think that is an overlooked point about international stocks. They do have higher dividends that we're earning more income even today than we do from U.S. stocks. One thing you said there that I want to hone in on a little, the change in price to earnings multiples. So just the valuation in the market. I think this is an important point for anybody who's going to invest in the stock market to understand. If we think back to last year, we had earnings multiples 22, 23 times on the S&P 500. I think today, depending on, you know, if you're looking forward or backward of earnings, maybe we're 18 or 19. Long run average is around 16. And we've been, what, as low as eight or nine times earnings uh, on the S&P. Could you maybe talk about some of the factors that go into why markets are valued at a, a certain multiple? Because as you talked about earlier, probability analysis tells us that implies a very wide range of potential valuations for the S&P 500. If we're trading at 10 times earnings, you know, that's down close to what, 50% from where we are today. If we go up to 30 times earnings, you could see a market that is up 70, 80, 90% from where we are today. So it's a really wide range of outcomes. Help people kind of think through why a market might be valued at at different levels at different times. Yeah. with, With anything, when there's more broader macro uncertainty and that there's more risk prevalent in the marketplace like we're at right now, there's a lack of clarity. People that are going to invest are going to invest and be a little bit more cautious and do so at more modest valuation levels. And that's what you've been experiencing, you know, more outside of the United States. So you know, we have been noticing a contraction in PE ratios like you've already mentioned, Zach, and that's that's normal. Right. When when there's you know less appetite for taking risk, the amount of which you're going to invest, yeah, you know, you're going to be a little bit more cautious with that. So that's that's certainly normal in this type of environment. And one other point, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, I mentioned dividends, and then you mentioned it as well. I just also want to just bring up one more point with this too, and it's when there is an environment with sticky inflation, like we've been noticing right now. What ends up happening is the market tends to cycle more towards what we refer to as shorter duration equities. And that's why dividends are always important. Valuations are always important. But the reason why you've been noticing these types of securities outperforming right now, it's the point that you mentioned a little bit earlier. There's more clarity there. You know, it shortens the duration of the return stream back to the underlying client. So in times of stress, when you have lack of clarity in the macro landscape, things like distributing income back out to your clients matters. And and that's what you've been seeing reflected in in prices. Right. So kind of taking this to the end client level, Mm -hmm. if we think about someone who's in their 30s or 40s and they're saving for retirement that's 20, 30 years away, you know, what what implications does uh, today's market, what's going on, changes in earnings multiples, what does that really mean for them ultimately. Is it that important? Is it that meaningful? Should people be stressing out or should they be more focused on on the long term? That may be a leading question, but that's that's intentional. No, of course. Less so. For many of your underlying clients, right? It, it's going to be they're accumulating assets to hopefully live off of at some point, you know, after their professional careers are over and they want to, you know, live off the income of which they invested for. That's a very common thing and a very rational thing. So for investors that are 20 or 30 years away from retirement, this is just noise. It's a little bit of theater, right? Because yep. it's it's not money that they're going to need anytime in the near future. And if anything, you know, I would rather be investing 
uh, at lower prices now, you know, recognizing that I'm going to accumulate more shares for which I'm going to need in the future. So, I mean, as perverse as it sounds, it's actually a good thing when markets take a dip because they're going to end up, you know, being able to buy in at lower prices. But it, it is also, when I think about just how Vanguard forecasts equity returns, so that does still play a role, though, too. You know, when I think about, you know, if we do expect equities to return less in the next decade than we've experienced in the past, might mean that investors might need to save a little bit more. You know, we can't just cruise off of double-digit equity returns forever. But again, I, I'm going to go back to the point, what's happening in markets and ratios, again, it, it's fun to follow. And we're all going to be mindful of it. But for those that don't need the money for extended periods of time, like you mentioned, decades, it's it's really not that important of a factor. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do think it is important to think about perspective returns as we are doing things like financial planning, retirement planning for clients. We know the future is going to be different than the past, but I think there's good reason to believe it's going to be similar in, in terms of market returns. One challenge that we had certainly over the last decade was Yes, we had great equity returns, which allowed us to earn above average returns for even portfolios that had a mix of stocks and bonds. But again, going back to the end of last year, you had such low prospective bond returns. That's a hit, okay. let's say an 8% portfolio return goal. We would have had to have earned, you know, 12, 14% stock returns, right? Which is well okay. above historic averages. And that's very uncomfortable. We had a lot of conversations with clients, just like you're saying, okay, let's think about if returns are lower than normal. Um, what does that mean? Do you, do you work longer? Do you save more? Do you change your portfolio allocation? One thing that you read about, it seems like every few years is this idea of is the 60, 40 portfolio dead, the 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Certainly from my perspective today with interest rates higher, the bond side of the portfolio is going to do a little more heavy lifting in terms of producing the return than it was in the past. So maybe walk us through Vanguard's thoughts on the 60-40 portfolio and the role that bonds play, particularly as you get closer to retirement and in retirement. Absolutely. So first thing I'm going to say, though, Zach, is it's understandable for this conversation to come up now in an environment where over short periods of time, the correlation between stocks and bond returns are high. This is not Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is not something that's common. And again, the catalyst here is going to be sticky inflation and a hawkish Fed. That's what's driving negative returns on both. And again, that's rational. That's how markets typically do behave when inflation is the catalyst for, for stressors. All that said, you know, it's hard to look at the volatility of this market, the uncertainty of this market. I'll say it again, the range of potential outcomes of what could happen in the future are at really high levels. And then to say diversification doesn't work anymore. Diversification absolutely does work. I, I recognize, again, uh, acknowledge correlations over, over the last few months has been quite high, but diversification does work over extended periods of time. And I don't know, you know what's going to happen with the U.S. economy or the global economy, for that matter, in 2023, 2024. I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, too, the Fed might even have to cut rates at some point 18 months from now. And that's not absurd to even think that. I don't know, but it's certainly not out of the range of possibilities. And in that environment, if, if we have to move down a path where you know the Fed is raising rates because inflation remains sticky, and we end up in an environment where we see a decline in economic activity, 
you're going to want to have exposure to the fixed income asset class. But I don't want to paint a dire scenario, though, too. That's not our base case, but right. it, it is, you know, it's certainly possible. You know, our base case is that the economy could withstand these Fed rate hikes and that we're still going to grow this year into next year and inflation is going to moderate. But again, you know, I, I don't want to paint a, a light here that that's not possible. It's certainly possible that we could see a decline in economic activity next year. But then to your other point, though, too, you know, when I think about just the return projections going forward with valuations, with equities, you know, they could come ratcheted, they could come in. But with fixed income at these higher valuation levels that I mentioned a little bit earlier, we're going to see seeing stronger returns and fixed income because of those higher income levels. Right. Projecting bond returns is just much easier than stock returns because we know at the end of the day, particularly you buy an individual bond, barring defaults, you're going to get the yield to maturity if you hold it all the way. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think an important point too that we've been emphasizing with clients quite a lot lately is we all have, when we start investing, and even if you're retired, let's say you're 65, people are living longer these days. We run retirement plans out to 95. That's a 30-year time period over which you're still investing, even as a retired 65-year-old. You're going to have times where market's correct. You're going to have 10% declines on average about once a year, um, and you're going to have more dramatic declines 20% or more uh, once every three, four, five years, correct? So mm -hmm. help us think about managing expectations for equity market investors. Again, we've been through this decade where we really, outside of COVID and the sharp declines in March of 2020, investors really haven't felt the volatility that you're talking about being more prevalent going forward. So kind of put in context, what's what's a normal level of volatility to expect with a less supportive Fed? I think you already hit the nail on the head there too, Zach. We do see bear markets from time to time, right? I, I just remember just through my lifetime and my career here at Vanguard coming out of the dot-com bubble. You know, there was a pretty meaningful bear market there. The global financial crisis, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but I think we were down 40% or close to it from peak to trough there. And then what, what ended up happening is during COVID, because of the significant response by policymakers, both monetary and fiscal stimulus, the response from equity markets, you know, they were down for what seemed like an extended period of time. But when we look back, it was really just weeks and, you know, less than a few months where we saw a decline in, in equities. But, you know, what we're experiencing right now with the decline in, in stocks in the first quarter of this year and and into the second quarter and what we've been noticing with fixed income, it's not every year, right? And you just mentioned the stats on how common it is, but it does happen from time to time. It's important, you know, in times like this to just remain disciplined and vigilant to the investment track that you've already strategically had aligned and just know that over the course of your investing career, I just mentioned my career here at Vanguard, I just rattle off, you know, several bear markets that this is going to happen. And it's just part of investing. But if you're disciplined and you think about the end result over a long period of time, it does provide financial benefits to have exposure to both equities and fixed income markets. I think that term discipline is so important. Certainly in times like this, we see, and look, we're all human, so we have our behavioral biases, but that temptation to time the market even for people who in normal times would be the first to say, hey, look, I know I can't time the market. That seems to come back during times like this. I think Vanguard mm -hmm. has done some wonderful research about the dangers of market timing. Could you just maybe quickly walk us through why that is generally not going to be a successful strategy? Yeah. So when you think about investing, most of this podcast, we're talking about just how unclear the future is going 
to be. And at Vanguard, we say, control what you can control and let time be your friend. So having a longer term view of your investing life cycle and thinking about things over extended periods of time is an advantage that's on your side. If you think about you know, what can happen if you potentially could be knee-jerk over short periods of time, is that you know, we mentioned a few times already that the market's fairly efficient. And essentially what that means, and especially now with the amount of information flow, things are being repriced a lot quicker these days. And I think all of us are experiencing that with just the day-to-day volatility in what's happening with markets. You could have a great day in markets and the next day it can sell off by a meaningful amount. So the market is constantly pricing in the news of the day and just what's happening around the world. And it's happening very, very quickly. So when you think about end clients, is there any type of information that they know that's not already been reflected in current pricing? That's the first part of it. And then the second part of it is there's two legs to this. You have to get in and you have to get out. So even if you were able to time a market saying, I'm going to get out of stocks today and I'm going to go into cash. Well, you have to know when to go back in too. So if this is just a simple coin flip, you got to get that coin flip twice. And more often than not, you're probably better served with working with an advisor like yourself, coming up with a strategic investing plan that meets your goals and needs, and then let time be your friend and you know, have a, a longer term time horizon and, and be disciplined. Now, if something changes in your life or if something changes with your risk tolerance, you know, that's certainly you know, a conversation to be had, but you know, we would never recommend making meaningful changes to your portfolio just because of what's happening in markets over short periods of time on itself. Beautifully said. People might start assuming that you actually work for Full Sail because <laughs> a lot of what you're saying is a lot of the same things we say. But I think really what it speaks to is the fact that from a partnership standpoint, it's why Vanguard and a Full Sail Capital firm like ours work so well together because similar approach. We know what we can control, which is not the stock market. We can control the other things, low cost, long term. So you guys have hit on a lot of it. Uh, Anything we left out, you guys want to go back and and hit on? The content's incredible, but I want to make sure we have it. Take a second to go back if we need to. Not from my perspective, Ed. I think uh, I think it was a great conversation. Anything else from your point of view? Nothing else on markets. Again, I just want to say just on behalf of Vanguard, thank you for giving us this opportunity to speak with you, Tyler and Zach, and most importantly, your underlying clients as well. So we really appreciate the forum. Of course. Yeah. Ed, thank you so much for the time. And uh, we will do this again. Maybe when everything that we just talked about comes true, we'll do it again and (laughs) and talk about it. Thank you for the time, sir. Have a great rest of your week. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 